0: All right, Uh, questions, thoughts, complaints from this morning. Um, Our microphones are standing by-ish. Alex, do you have a baby in your arms back there? Can you be the other microphone guy? Awesome, thank you. My normal retinue are absent. Oh, we got a question right here. Oh, hello, hello, Adam? He's running it from his phone, people. That's high te- we're high tech here at Martinsdale. Yes.
1: Um, so I'm pretty sure that I got this, but the, the manager, the yeah. one who fired, yeah. Whatever. when he praised him at the end, he knew that the man was being deceitful. Mm-hmm. He knew that he was, and he was just, yeah. it was the well-played, it was like, well, Good for you for working that out. And right. You're still fired.
0: Right. Well, and because these people don't really exist, I mean, it's a parable, right? It's not to say that, oh, I'll let you stay. Do you ever remember those Mentos commercials? No. No? Okay. You, you know what I'm talking about. They Maybe. show somebody do something somewhat shrewd or something on it, like, and then there'd always be the sort of the look and the person be like, oh, I see. Like, I don't know. Like, this guy in one, like, gets through a construction zone to make a shortcut to get somewhere and the people are mad. Anyway, this is a terrible example. That's what, this is what. I thought of using this in the sermon, and I'm really glad I didn't now. <laughs> I'm really glad I didn't now. But it always end at the end with the person who is mad seeing the person's cleverness and sort of <laughs> throwing their hands up and you're like, oh, what do you do? And then the guy would hold up his Mentos with a thumbs up and be like, Mentos. <laughs> yeah, really, thank you. That was, that was God's grace that that did not <laughs> end up in this morning's message. But, no, but there's just a point of, you can look at it like well played, like, for those of you who know me, I like playing board games. And I, 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 my wife will sometimes, or somebody will do something, a brutal, devastating move. You're trying to do something in the game, and they cut you off. Like, oh, that just, my wife will be like, I'm sorry. like, no, no, that was brilliant. You totally wrecked me. That was brilliant. You know? uh, it's kind of like that. We can appreciate well-played. You know, the manager can see the shrewdness. Well, well done. As, like I said, this, this owner is kind of a fool, because just about every corporation and company I know of today will not let that happen, which is why, if you're in any position of any touching sensitive information or being able to do harm to the company, they don't give you a two-week notice, they're just, you're gone today. Someone will walk you to your cubicle and, and take care of it, so that something like that doesn't happen. But, no, it, the, the, the concept is this, when you're working simply under the sun, there is a logic, and there is a—you uh, look after your own interest—that everyone recognizes and everyone understands. So that even the boss can recognize that was shrewd. Well, you, well done. I'm not—I mean, and we can add in—he's probably not happy. He's still fired. All that other stuff. But at le- even his—what Jesus is saying is, among the sons of this generation, which we know is the evil and adulterous generation from a few chapters back. So the the worldlings, for lack of a better term recognize this and then we can even recognize it amongst each other and why is it then that the children of light aren't equally with, with their reality and the things that are in, at stake that Jesus is saying are at stake with their eternity why aren't they mimicking that level of ingenuity and zeal well I think his truisms at the end help to start explain. it's ultimately not that the sons of light really are just naive really are just oh we never thought of that I don't think it's really that the sons of darkness are more shrewd they're more shrewd in what they do they're functionally more shrewd but i think if you follow jesus statements at the end it's not as much due to the fact that his followers are just <laughs> they're just so trusting and naive they never even thought of something like that it's actually that their hearts are being tugged and pulled away to love money that's i think the explanation we're supposed to draw for why we're not acting with an equal shrewdness is that what you're asking or did i just sort of go off greg sweet
1: Well, I was just struggling a little bit with the cause and effect uh, in verse nine uh, so in the parable, yeah. the master is saying and, and well, more to the point what what Jesus is telling was trying to tell us was that we need to be as shrewd as uh, in looking at our future as the unrighteous were, were in looking at what they thought was their future. Right. But what I'm struggling with, I guess, was... I, it says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So, what are we to be doing? Uh, uh, because it would seem that we, we shouldn't be doing that. And this says to do that.
0: Gotcha. I don't think, when Jesus calls wealth or mammon unrighteous. I don't think he's saying there's righteous money and unrighteous money. Go find all the unrighteous money, the drug money, the gambling money, the extortion money, and use that. I think it's unrighteous simply to the degree that it's part of this evil in world. Will there be money in heaven? Will we be buying money and wealth is at this age only possession, right? It, 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 gold becomes paving stones in, in heaven. So I don't think the distinction is some of your money is righteous and some of it is unrighteous and I want you to do this with the unrighteous stuff. I think he's calling all money unrighteous to the degree that it's of this age. The sons, so I think I read a quote. I'll read, if I didn't read a quote, I've got a quote. Um, I got a quote for that. Here we go. Wealth is characterized as dishonest in the same way that the manager was. Both belong to this eon. Indeed, in speaking of its demise, Jesus insinuates that mammon has no place to come in the age to come. So, I think he's just referring to all money, in that sense, as corrupt, as it's not, it's, it's of this corrupt world, it's passing away, it's. it's so it's, basically
1: he's saying, use that money to lay up treasure in heaven by perhaps giving it away.
0: Yeah, the things um, I think he said earlier in the letter. It's kind of like looking at food that's gonna perish. You know, this this food is not gonna last for long. If you've got fruit and vegetables or bread, it's gonna get moldy, it's gonna rot. So do something with it while you can. This perishable food, do something with it. Here's this perishable money, which is contrasted in in 12 with, um, where thief and, and, no, does he do thief and moth, or is that the parallel passage? In 12, if you go back to 12, he contrasts the money of this age, I think it's the same type of concept, in 1233, Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old. And treasure in heaven that does not fail. So I think it's simply the fact that the money and the possessions of this world ultimately will rot, disintegrate, turn to dust, molder away. And that unrighteous money, simply because it's not lasting... You can do stuff that does have eternal consequence with it, even though it, by its own nature, is transient and temporary. I think that's what he's getting at. And so it's not, it's not the uh, go find the... Yeah, I'm repeating myself, sorry.
1: I, have, I do have one other question. Yes, sir. Uh, not related exactly to that. Yes, sir. But you, but you took us to Luke 6.30, and it says, Give to everyone who begs from you. Um, we, we talked about that several weeks ago, yeah. and, and I'm just, um, I'm, I'm trying to factor that into the real world and yeah. how we should really, I, I mean, part of me thinks, no, I don't think that's a wise thing to do. Sure. Um, so, I guess I'm asking, is that wrong thinking?
0: No, I, I think that, and... A year or so ago, when we went through that, (laughs) Um, it's not the only principle. I think I was talking to Daniel about this, Pastor Daniel. And and the thought is, I think this: our default position should be to say yes. I think there can be reasons why we say no. I mean, Paul says if someone won't, Paul says clearly in Thessalonians, if they won't work, let them not eat. So there's a reason why to say no. If someone's refusing to work and they're saying, "I don't want to work," give me money instead. No, right? But my default. It's the, all the difference in the world, I think, between is my default position, I don't want to, let me find a good reason not to, and well, of course. Unless there's a good reason not to. Um, so I, I think the mentality is the status quo, all things being equal. Other things could factor in. This, I've promised this money to the, my bank for my mortgage. It's not mine to give. That'd be a reason, right? I, I've, I've promised this to somebody, or I'm um, whatever. But all things being equal, sure. I, I think it's the sort of the assumption is all things being equal, the default position is yes. Now let's look at the factoring positions as opposed to the default position being no, you've got to argue why I should give to you. It's the opposite. The default is yes, and, uh, and there need to be biblical principles to say no. That's my short answer on that. Does that work? Okay. Other questions? Thoughts, complaints, interjections? I'll bring up something Alex asked me in the, uh, in, the, in the foyer. It's not entirely clear whether the friends are God himself or other people. And the commentators are split along that pretty clear. If you look at verse 9 again of 16, I tell you, make friends for yourselves um, by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And it couldn't with all the plurals there. You all make friends for you all so that when you all go to your dwellings, you'll be received. It, it's in, I think in the first instance, it probably is God we're talking about. But because of the illustration of the rich man of Lazarus coming up, starting in verse 19, the rich man is in hell and he's looking for a friend who can simply come and dip a drop of water on his tongue and does such a friend exist? No. Lazarus is in view and he has no friends to do that to him. And Abraham has to say to him, I'm sorry, man, nothing we can do for you. So the rich man's afterlife has no friends. So part of me does think it, it could be people as well. But you go back, to, uh, go back to 13, no, 14, sorry, 14. There the rewarder is God, the Father. So I wouldn't want to die in the hill of whether the friends are... Um, is God as the friend, or if it's other people? Because of Lazarus, I, I, I think you can include other people. I like to think that um, you, the people who you've ministered grace to, will rejoice when you go to heaven, that they will welcome you as well. But in the parable of the uh, banquet, verse 12, chapter 14, When you give a dinner banquet, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now there, I think, clearly, the person to repay or reward you is God. So... So the question of is this are these friends God or other people? It certainly is God, and I'm, I think it's possible also that it could spread to God's people in heaven as well, um, but I, I, I can't be totally clear on that. Linda.
2: Okay, so my notes for um, verse nine say God for using worldly wealth it says God's people should be alert to make use of what God has given them to gain friends by helping those in need who in the future will show their gratitude when they welcome their benefactors into heaven so that leads me to think that these are believers that are being helped because only believers would be in help in heaven to welcome their benefactors correct
0: that's what the notes would definitely lead me to think is being said agreed
2: so it seems like maybe it, it you know it doesn't tell that so well in in the verse above and this is i mean i'm not saying these notes are 100% <laughs> right either you know oh we,
0: let us <laughs> not bring john MacArthur into He's question not- No, I I actually listened to MacArthur preach on this um, throughout the week, and his emphasis was heavily on missions and evangelism, and that's how you reign friends for yourself. Part of the reason I tried to track through Luke is Jesus' teaching in Luke isn't nearly so specific. It seems more general. It seems more broad. Whoever asks if you give, being generous. Now, you go through the New Testament, and there is an emphasis on do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. So you keep going through the New Testament. There is a priority on us to do good and be generous, especially to Christians. I just don't think Luke's given us that emphasis yet. Um, So in Luke, I think it's still pretty broad. Hey, everyone who has need, anyone who asks of you, give it to them. You know, sell your possessions, give to the poor, without a whole lot of qualification. Now, you keep reading through the New Testament, there's going to be more clarity given. So I'm just trying, thus far in Luke, and MacArthur's probably doing the same thing with his notes. He's bringing all the New Testaments to say to that, and he's probably, may well be right. I'm just trying to come at it from, as we go through Luke, what has Jesus previously taught us about money isn't nearly that focused yet. That's all I'm trying to get at, is is we sort of surveyed through Luke what he said to his disciples about money. So yeah, if you were to systematize the entire New Testament's teaching, it, he's probably right. Um, that, that's, yeah.
2: Okay, and to tack on to a little bit what Greg said about yeah. the knowing when, you know, you're, you're saying your default should always be yes. But technically, I mean, here with our taxes, we're doing that because the government is providing for people who won't work, who shouldn't be eating. So, I mean, even though I know he was talking about us personally, We're going to go there, are we? Okay. No, no, no. We don't have to go any further. But I'm, it, that just thought came into my head as he was saying that. Because on our own, personally, if we encounter someone, you know, yeah. who asks us for help, then it's our place to determine, you know, by the scriptures, you know, if it's a yes or a no, basically. But yeah, in this country. Yeah you know, and we're told to obey our government, whether we like it or not.
0: Well, I'll, I'll make it simpler. I and
2: mean, then, Unless it goes against God's word, right. obviously. No, no, I'll make
0: it simpler. Jesus defines the taxes paid to Rome as Caesar's money. And Caesar was definitely doing evil with that money, right? Um, and so I don't think there's any moral guilt if I'm a Roman citizen and I'm giving my taxes to Caesar, but I know that that is funding the enslavement of other people and wars and all sorts of corruption, No, it's Caesar's money. And what Caesar does with it is Caesar's business. Now, it's a little different because, in one sense, we vote. But if you're voting your conscience and you're voting for what you think is righteousness and Caesar, in our instance, says, no, I'm going to do this with it, I I think still ethically we aren't going to be held responsible for the evils our government does with our money if we are actually taking the opportunities we have to speak into our government and vote. Then it's Caesar's money. So I don't feel like I'm morally responsible for the things my country does with my money if I'm speaking up and voting what I think is right. If I vote for what's right, what I think is right, and something else passes, it's Caesar's money. So, you know what I mean? So I've, I've just heard people try to justify not paying taxes, because by not, if I pay taxes, I and mean, you're not saying this, but I've heard my money's going to support all these things, and I can't do that. I'm like It's Caesar's money. Give it to Caesar. Um, when Caesar asks you what you think you should do with it, tell him. <laughs> but it's the end of the day, it's Caesar's. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to dodge that. OK. okay.
2: Should we not be careful when we read things like this of committing anachronism? Because those days, if you didn't eat, you died. There was no welfare system. There was nothing. So if you didn't give anybody food, they'd have to go and find a job, right? Because they would die. They would physically die. In this parable,
0: what are these guys' options? Dig a ditch, beg. So that gives us, in the parable itself, a context of there are not programs available to help weak, proud, poor managers, right? So, so we get those are the options. And anachronism is a great word, and anachronos, it's to read the present into the past. Um, and so, yes, it would be a mistake to assume our situation and read it back into Jesus' situation, so you try to look to the text itself to construct the situation. And in the laws of Moses, there are, there are absolutely um, things put in place. If we're gonna go oh, good grief, we're gonna go there. There are things put in the law of Moses, but not gleaning the corner of your field. So that the poor there is a place for the poor, and there's a place for the weak, the widow and the orphan, and there are social programs in that extent. You cannot totally harvest your field. You can't totally harvest your field. Um, and you have to leave it there for that. Now, it's nothing remotely close to some of the the, this, the programs we have, but there is precedent for that. So it's not simple laissez-faire capitalism, you know. Um, so there is some precedent there for that. <coughs> Hold on. But their situation is very different from ours. There, there were not safety nets. You, starving to death was a very real possibility, a very real possibility. And in fact, this is particularly interesting to me. Um, Do you know that the earliest Christians, John Chrysostom, 4th century, argued against Constantine creating poor houses from the state. Constantine, the first Christian Roman emperor, um, was going to create poor houses to, to, to give the poor people places to sleep and eat and stuff. And Chrysostom argued against it, claiming that if the state took on that responsibility, the church would stop doing it. No, and we got to push back that. It's too easy to say, "Well, we, I don't need to be generous because my tax monies are being generous for me." I mean, that, that's Scrooge, right? Are there no poor houses, Right. Um, so it, it's, it is tough, though, because we live in a world where there's so much more, um, there's so many more social programs that uh, that are available. That it's easy to be both resentful towards people because there, there certainly are people gaming that system. Um, and there's people that are really are in need in that system as well. And it's tough because you know we, we, we get burned and we see the people who are gaming it and then we tend to think, oh, they're all like that. And then we harden our heart to people. It's tough, it, it is tough um, to have wisdom. So, okay, have we dodged it or are we going deeper? Let's see what happens. <laughs> we got 10 minutes, folks. He did. But see, that wrecks havoc. And I got a phone call from Dave Lample, who, who, who wanted to tell me there was a lot of people going by the edge of his classroom talking about 10 minutes before it got out. So now I know what happened yeah. there. And I, g- I gave Dave my word I, wouldn't, I would not let that happen. So um. the door. <laughs> of <Lock> the door. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he had his door shut. Oh, I think. Yes, yes. Um, One of the things we're actually looking into is getting some solid wood doors to block sound better for these, so people come out in the foyer and talk and not make us, it won't bleed over as much as well. Okay, anything else? Anything else at all?
2: I'm going to go back to that same verse, though. Um, It just seems like... If we're using the unrighteous wealth, so we're using the things of the earth that is here, but Satan has ruled by God's authority for a time here, but we're to make friends. So they weren't our friends ahead of time, so we use whatever means God has blessed us with in each of our lives to go out to make friends or Mm -hmm. help people to come to know the Lord or know of our life so that when this fails, because it's going to, ultimately, everything is going to be gone. So that I think these are the people that we help to come to know, or our children, or people that are influences in our lives, so that when we're in heaven, these people weren't there, but we made friends, so they weren't gonna be in heaven.
0: Yeah, yeah I, that... I, I think that's totally in view. That's what I was talking with Alex about. And so I think it's definitely God. The friends are definitely God. And then I think, clearly, in the, if, this all depends on the parable, how much you line it up. In the case of the steward, he's got multiple people who are happy to take him in and welcome him. And so it stands, I got no problem with the fact that when, when I die and go to heaven, it, if there are some people that I've been a blessing to, if there's some people that I've, I've uh, helped or been encouragement to or given money to, and they're, they're ahead of me, that they will rejoice and welcome me in as well, in keeping with God's rejoicing and welcoming me and, and so on. So I, I think it's fine to be both. It definitely is God as well, though. That's, that's the point Alex was getting at. He was worried. I was making it sound like it was just people and not God. It's definitely God. And I think, and then, like I said, in the very next parable, we've got Lazarus, who the rich man's hoping to give him some type of help or welcome, and he doesn't get it. And so I, I think that, that he could have. I mean, he could have been kind to of Lazarus. He could have let him eat in his table scraps, and he didn't. And it's not that Lazarus is mad and holding a grudge. It's that the judgment is such that there's nothing Lazarus could do. That's what Abraham says. There's a big gulf between the two of us. It's not that Lazarus is mad and saying, "Yeah, I'm not helping you." He can't. It's set up so that he can't. Um, but but Abraham does remind him, right? I mean, that's where I think that it's legitimate to look at look at yeah, look at the uh, yeah. the next parable, starting ooh, 23. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, "Father Abraham." Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in cool water, in water, and cool my tongue, for I am anguish in this flame. And Abraham said to him, and Abraham's not mad at them, he called speaks to him affectionately, child, child, remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And so he reminds him that you had all these world's good possessions and the assumption is and you enjoyed them, man. And we know he didn't really share them because every day Lazarus was placed in front of his gates and every day he wished long to eat the scraps from his table didn't happen so the assumption is you had plenty of stewardship of stuff and you, you I hope that worked out for you the 30 40 50 years you had i hope they were worth it I hope they were fun and uh now here you are and so it becomes a pretty vivid illustration and picture of the warning of what can happen if we let money rule our hearts we live this way we prove we don't love god and, and that was the last point i was trying to make before um, at the end of the sermon was it's not we're saved by being generous and we're damned by not being generous but because jesus makes it clear you will love one and hate the other if you hate god you're not saved fair enough if you hate god you're not saved and jesus says you're eventually going to come to love the money and hate god so people that love money and live like they love money and possessions and wealth and the things of this world are proving ultimately they hate God. And remember, hate doesn't have to mean I want you to die. We've just come out of hating your mother, brother, father, son. It just means way in second place. Yeah, yeah, God's nice and all, but I love my stuff. That, that can be biblical hate. Jacob um, loved Rachel and hated Leah, right? We still raised a bunch of kids with her, so he couldn't have hated her that much. Um, and so that's the notion. So it doesn't have to be like, oh, I'm mad at and hate God. It's just this has got a hold of my heart and there's no room for God now, or God's way in second place, a long ways away. Such people aren't going to get a blessing. They're not going to inherit anything. They're not going to be entrusted with riches because they don't love God. That's, that's the logic. But the, the evidence of that is this. So don't, don't mistake it. I've been having a lot of talks with my son Abner about this. It's, we're not saved by what we do, but what we do reveals what we love, what we revere, what we value, what we worship. And, and worship just means worth-ship. What are we living like? Thing, what, if someone just looked at my life, the things I thought about, the things I talked about, where I spend my time, what would they conclude I think has value? Where do I spend my chips? What, what do I treat as worth? And worthy of my time and my money that's what I worship Lee
2: and I think is it in scripture where it says God loves a cheerful giver yes because uh, taking yeah and and taking this a little bit further is that as Christians we want to make sure that we're not saying gee if I didn't give that money I could have got this other crap that i didn't need and <laughs> you know but to make sure that we're really
0: like I mean, a jugular I, I, you know
2: i i love i mean i love when i pay the bills to write checks to ministries and stuff and i'm, I'm sure mm. everybody that does that i and i hope i mean that's a good thing i i want to i want to continue to love that and not begrudge it by
0: any means so right well, and this, this gets back to ultimately believing what Jesus says and looking at it. If we really believe what he says, I, I tried to make this point um, a few weeks ago when we got to the whole cellular your possessions thing. And I use the analogy, I'll use it again, if we're in the middle of playing a game of Monopoly, um, normally I play fun games, but every now and then I'll play Monopoly. And uh, <laughs> the, the problem with Monopoly is it's broken. There's a dominant strategy, you either play it and win or you don't, and then it's no fun because your actions are scripted buy everything don't let anyone get a monopoly anyway that's all i mean when i criticize monopoly it's broken um but uh say we're playing monopoly we're an hour and a half (laughs) it is um (laughs) sorry broken meaning simply it's solved there's there's one clear strategy that works and if you don't play it you lose um sorry sorry you're getting me off on a hobby horse topic tangent Oh, sorry. Okay. My brain likes puzzles, but I like about board games is, the puzzle aspect. But once the puzzle is solved, it's not fun. Sorry. Okay, so you're an hour and a half, two hours in Monopoly, and all of a sudden, you're playing with me, and I stop, and I pull out a big wad of cash, and I say, look, I'm going to, for whatever reason, I'm going to give you 10 to 1 real-world money right now for every Monopoly dollar you give me. If your next question is, so how much do I have to give you then? You don't get what I just said. You'd be mortgaging your properties, you'd be borrowing, if, I, if you could get 10 to 1 real world money for monopoly money, you would not be saying, okay, then so how much do I have to give you? You'd be like, you know, handing it all over. Jesus says, here's money that will fail. It will rot, it will dissolve, it will not go with you, you will not take it with you, but you can store up treasure in heaven that will not fail, that will not rot, that will not rust, the eight billion years you'll still be enjoying. From eight billion years from now, you'll still be enjoying. And then we're like, okay, so how much do I have to give then to be a good Christian? We don't get it. And it gets back to the notion of Jesus loving a cheerful giver. He's not trying to guilt us into giving. He, he will point out, if you're not giving, you don't believe what I said. But if you really get a hold of what I said, what I promised you, you would be like those Thessalonians in their poverty, begging to give more. Paul, let us give a little more. And when Paul's on a fundraising journey, and he says they begged f- for the permission to give, this is 2 Corinthians 8, 1-5. to At what point does a fundraiser need to be begged to give? It's only going to make sense if he's told them to stop. You've given enough. It's, you, come on, guys. And they're like, no, 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 Paul, let me give you some more. Because they get it. So, so the point isn't to guilt Christians into being generous. The point is, really believe this. He, he really does care for the grass and the birds. He cares for you. You won't get burned because you're being generous. If you're afraid, I'd love to be generous, but I'm afraid we're not going to be... Don't, he will take care of you. Be free to be generous. Then we're not going to be asking questions like, okay, well, how much then? which is really coming from the mentality of this, that CS Lewis quote we hope after we pay all our bills there's a little left for us. Okay, so God wants me to give to this and God wants okay, here's a new thing God wants me to give to. Well, I certainly hope at the end of the day there'll be enough left for me. We we don't really get what he's saying, I think, in that case. Okay.
2: Quoting CS Lewis, was it he who said that if you were taken to court on the charge of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to find you guilty? <laughs>
0: I don't know if that was Lewis, but I've heard that a number of times, yeah. Now that's, that's kind of the point. So Jesus is telling us, this, and I'll close with this. We, we live in a day and an age where people claim to not be religious, but to be very spiritual. And part of the problem is we've so internalized religion and faith into some inward existential um, feeling, personal thing and jesus consistently is giving his disciples real world practical ways to determine where they're at which does a couple things one jesus does not assume that you and i inherently know what we believe on our own apart from what we do otherwise you just say well you know what you believe of course you know what you believe i do a lot of counseling people all the time i'm dealing with don't know what they believe (laughs) they think they believe one thing and then it comes out well actually It sure looks like you believe this. It sure looks like you think this is true. like, oh, wow. I mean, the heart is deceitful and wicked. I mean, and I can recite true doctrine to you, and yet I'll go home and I'll believe that I deserve some rest. My wife, after all, just gave birth to a fifth child. I mean, I I need a break. I preached a sermon. (laughs) Now, I don't, in my head, click through that and say, yeah. But somewhere, at some point, between here and going home, on many Sundays, I believe that. My heart sells that to me. I think, yeah, you're right. I do deserve a break. I do deserve... You can, you can. I, I believe that, right? Now, I'm not consciously aware that happens, but as I look at my actions, I go, wow. Yeah, I really did believe that for a bit there, didn't I? So the first thing Jesus assumes, he does not assume that his disciples know authoritatively and clearly what they actually believe. So many people I talk to will insist they're Christians and when you ask them how they know they're Christians, they don't point to the things Jesus points to, They some existential internal certainty. Well, okay, then why does Jesus say things like this? Why does Jesus say, you know, he, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? He's, he, well, in here, he's telling them, look, if, if you're not faithful, he's talking to his disciples, if you're not faithful, who's, there's, a, there's a gentle warning going on here. And ultimately, he points it back to, because you can't do both. You can't do both. You can't love both. You can't serve both. You can't. That warning would make no sense if we weren't prone to self-deception and prone to our hearts subtly being grabbed a hold of. So Jesus is warning his disciples, you don't want to become the Pharisees. You don't want that. And so what he's trying to show us is this little sapling that's growing up in your heart that looks non-threatening, doesn't look so... I mean, after all, don't most Christians kind of love the world a little bit? When it grows, if you don't ultimately pluck that thing out, if that ultimately its roots go down deep and it sets up camp and it, it grows into an oak tree, it, it becomes the guys in verse 14. <laughs> that's the warning, right? And the guys in verse 14 aren't going to heaven. The Pharisees who loved money and mocked Jesus. That, that's, that's what's going on. Anyway, we're at time. Thank you very much. God bless.